，鬼岛之音 ，Ghost Island Media。Hey Emily Y Wu here. I produce this show and a couple of others at Ghost Island Media. We hope you're safe and well wherever you are. Today's episode is supported by the Institute for National Defense and Security Research in Taiwan, a think tank dedicated to fueling knowledge-based policy analyses and strategic assessments on Taiwan's security. Over 193,000 deaths worldwide from COVID-19. Infection cases are about to hit three million. The top five countries with the largest number of fatalities are the United States, Italy, France, Spain, and the United Kingdom. This pandemic has gotten so world-changing, literally, that every media outlet, every risk consultancy, every multinational, and every research shop are putting out COVID-19 special reports. What role is the military in any country taking in combating and countering the pandemic? How come travel bans and lockdowns weren't able to prevent more deaths in various countries? Is this coronavirus that originated in Wuhan in China changing the future world order? And how did the Chinese Communist Party go from scapegoat to savior in this global tragedy? The COVID-19 pandemic is a global issue, and this is the Taiwan Take. I'm your host, J.R. Wu. Welcome to a new episode. Today is April 27th. We are speaking with two experts from the Institute for National Defense and Security Research. One looks at traditional security issues, and the other one, cybersecurity issues. The institute, where this podcast is being recorded, specializes in defense and security affairs. Now, this week, the institute is issuing a COVID-19 special research edition. Ten research pieces that look at topics like what the militaries in the United States, China, Germany, and Japan are doing, and the challenges they are facing. It also has research that reviews critical information infrastructure. As COVID nineteen ignites thinking on vulnerabilities, it also number crunches travel restrictions and infection cases data of a hundred and ninety nine countries to find out how effective travel bans can be. And then there is China and COVID nineteen. Our guests today are Dr. Zhe Chenli, Li Zhechen Boshi, and Dr. Yi Suozheng. Zhen Yisuo Boshi, Dr. Zheng focuses on cybersecurity issues and information warfare. In this special edition, he discusses the CCP's Chinese Communist Party influence operations. Dr. Li, meanwhile, focuses on national security and decision making. In this edition, he writes about where in the world we are heading when we get on the other side of this virus. Crisis. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here.、Uh, this is、uh, Zhe Chengli. I'm from National Security and Decision Making Division. 
pleasure to be here. Particularly delighted to be with Dr. Lee Amy Suotsen, uh, in charge of Division of Cyber Warfare and Information Security. Dr. Lee, let's start with you first. You talk about a world hobbled by inability. Weinan, I think, is the two Chinese character words that you use. This COVID nineteen crisis ushers in a world that is likely to be less open, prosperous, and free. And the state of globalization, as you have written, in the early twenty first century, will turn conservative and risk averse. My goodness, are we talking about Armageddon, sir? <laughs> Since I am in charge of national security. What I'm trying to do is to give a whole map of the world to serve as an introduction to this special issue. What we are witnessing is a global crisis. No matter in terms of public health, which could be the worst one since the 1918 Spanish flu, or in economic term, which could be the worst case since the the Great Depression, Great Depression right? Yeah, in the 1930s. And more than that, I think. This crisis could have very significant impact for the future military and warfighting concept. Now, there's a lot of research out there, a lot of talking heads out there, and the main question a lot of people ask is: Will this crisis fundamentally change geopolitics as we know it?、Um, we don't have consensus from experts, scholars from all over the world, but at least for one thing, I'm personally quite sure. That is the confrontation between China and the United States、uh, will getting even worse because we see that China could be the first one walking out of the ICU from the pandemic, and now it is trying to play the role as、uh, the world savior. While on the contrary, the United States, under the leadership of、uh, Trump administration, seems that has not been able to. Deal with the pandemic very well, so a lot of experts worry that、uh, maybe under Trump's、uh, unilateralism, the geopolitical confrontation between the two great power has very little chance to get better. Even though the leaders from China or the United States agree that they are supposed to work together to deal with this pandemic. What other parts about this future world order that was interesting to you as you were doing your research?、Um, it has been more than three years since Trump stepped in his、uh, office. What we are witnessing is that China has been expanding its leadership in international organizations, but、um, the United States has withdrawn from a lot of international agreements and several important international organizations. So I think this war is becoming more and more conservative. It is even worse that because of the traffic restrictions and the suspension of industrial productions, I think、um, the trend of globalization will be impact to a great extent, and、uh, country will try to figure out better way or new way to secure their own destiny or their own security. Now I know、uh, you mapped out and counted out actually a few of the multilateral organizations and senior roles where 
the PRC has influence, if not the outright title of that role. The secretary generalships of four of them, and I believe six of them, Chinese nationals also dominate the deputy level. Now, if we bring it to the WHO, it's been talked about a lot in this crisis, how maybe it was behind the curve and maybe it's too China-centric. Has it lost its credibility, sir? And of course, we're sitting in Taiwan. Yeah, a lot of people think so. And that is why we see a petition uh, in the United States. People try to urge the Secretary Director General of WHO to step down. Other than that, I think um, it has been proved right that after several decades of international participation, China has not been really adapted to the rules and practice of the current system, global system. But instead, it tried to have uh, its own saying and tried to become the rule maker to change the current system of the world. I think, let me just pause you for a moment, sir, for our listeners. So the WHO is under the United Nations system, and under the United Nations, it recognizes a one-China policy. So Taiwan is not part of that system. Some of the controversies that have come out during this virus crisis is how Taiwan has been sidelined and marginalized, even in the statistics of WHO counting for COVID-19. Um, But the irony is, to put some facts on the table, is that Taiwan's Central Epidemic Command Center, their latest data, Taiwan has had six deaths. It has 429 infection cases. Now, this compares to what we said at the top of the show. I mean, infection cases worldwide are hitting 3 million very soon. Taiwan has tiny, tiny fraction of that. And it is a 90-minute flight to the Chinese coast. And here, everyone has been able to mostly go on business as usual, work and schools are open. Um, So this WHO and its handling of the epidemic, which then became a pandemic, it really uh, is an issue here for Taiwan too and the future world order. Yes. I think one of the major reasons why Taiwan is one of the countries who deal with the pandemic pretty well is that we know the CCP government very well. The Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, Chinese Communist Party. We don't really count on their official figures. So at the very early stage, our experts in public health, they ask China for permission to went there to see what is going on. I believe that is in early January. And uh, we are also one of the countries who, I think we, we are the earliest one country to send a message to WHO. So it's part of that bigger picture that you were painting in your piece on how Beijing's creeping influence in these multilateral organizations. I mean, I remember uh, when I was having earlier conversations with you, Dr. Lee, uh, at the Institute, you were saying the U.S. backed off or backed out of human rights agency in the U.N. China is in now. And now it seems like China is redefining what universal human rights values are. This is that uh, very concerning issue about China sitting in these positions of influence. And as I understand it, the WHO, they very much rely on financial funding of 
partner countries. The Trump administration has said they're going to suspend funding. China apparently has stepped up its funding uh, for the WHO in recent years. Yes, I think we already witnessed what is happening. I mean, it's a very clear contrast between what China and the United States has done to this organization. And uh, what I'm trying to add is that there are more, I mean, happening in different international organizations. For instance, in earlier this year, China tried to run for the election of Secretary General of uh, War Intellectual Property Organization. But, but it failed because of U.S. strong support to another candidate from Singapore. If China becomes the leader of WIPO, W-I-P-O, that would be very interesting because China could have the chance to change the, the rule of the game of intellectual property. China is one of the major countries who violate IPR. And uh, there is another case happening in other international organizations, which is also very important. ITU, International Telecommunication Union. That's right. And this has to do with 5G. Yes. And uh, they just proposed a new internet version called New IP, which tried to replace the current protocol of TCP IP. But some expert contends that this could be dangerous because under New IP system, government, they will have uh, easier access to control their own domestic internet system. Now, this is going to be a tough question for you, sir, but you used to work at the foreign ministry in Taiwan. You used to work at the Mainland Affairs Council, which is a cabinet level agency that deals with China policy for Taiwan. Yourself, your sense from your own experience in having to deal with the PRC, where do you think the world is going with this crisis? And, you know, crisis is opportunity. So China's moving in because it sees an opportunity. Why not? Yeah, that is an old saying in China, That's right. Yeah, make the best use of the crisis. Uh, I also believe that that is what China is trying to do. And um, What's wrong with that? I'd uh, want to do it. The U.S. would want to do it. Yes, but the problem is that China is not doing what it claimed. I mean, sincerely, because even though he tried to play the role as war savior, the quality of his uh, medical supplies, and he tried to save the war. For example, how about the case of uh, African country? They collectively asked China to waive their debt interest, but seems that China has not agreed with that yet. This is during this crisis. Yes, during this crisis. And uh, China is doing more. A lot of countries think that is not helpful to this current situation. For example, China just arrested 15 pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong several Again? days ago. Yes. And um, China continued its patrol surrounding Taiwan. I mean, no matter on the surface or in the air. And China also sent a very strong signal to countries surrounding South China Sea that our marine patrol vessels and also our militias is there on the water, so you better be watch out. That is not a benign power it's supposed to do under the current situation. I want to come back to all of this 
But I also want to give Dr. Zheng a chance to talk as well. Now, Dr. Li was talking about how China, you know, wants to be the world savior, wants to be seen as it, as a world savior. Now, this actually dovetails quite nicely in your research, Dr. Zheng. I mean, from scapegoat to savior, the CCP, the Communist Party there, has transformed what could have been a fatal fumble on its early mishandling of the coronavirus crisis into an example of a non-democratic governance model to possibly be emulated. You also talk about this is a sort of preemptive strike on public opinion against Beijing. What's that all about, sir? Well, I think this is the first time we've ever witnessed that Beijing initiated some inference operations uh, using both official propaganda channel and uh, disinformation campaign through a social media platform. Uh, what's different from the past behavior pattern is that usually, just like Dr. Lee has mentioned, Beijing has credibility issue in terms of external propaganda or internal domestic uh, information propaganda. But this time, at the first stage, when China is still in dire situation under the coronavirus attack, Beijing has tightened the domestic information control. Censorship, right? Censorship, yeah. While at the same time, uh, starting mid-March, Beijing has turned the corner around and... uh, initiate a so-called coordinated inauthentic behavior uh, in this information operation. Now, just to uh, pull a context for what you've just said on the timeline, in March, China was getting much better. Their deaths, their infection cases were actually declining. And at the same time, it was other countries in the world, the United States, uh, in Europe, that things were getting worse, and that was the environment where this disinformation potentially was started. Exactly. At the time when China is trying to build the image that it is getting better. uh, But hang on. Mm -hmm. What do you mean build the image? Their numbers were coming down. The WHO had numbers from them, and they didn't have so many factual numbers that showed things were not getting better. Yeah, in fact, I would urge you, everybody, to look for Dr. Li's, Li Zhechen's paper that he has mentioned that uh, Xi Jinping, CCP chairman, in order to push ahead the reopening of the production lines and the services, CCP has made every effort to kind of fabricate all the to make the number of the... I know uh, what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I remember that research piece, mm-hmm. and it showed how on February 3rd, when Xi Jinping called for back to work, that bar chart that showed up in Dr. Li's piece, and you were using and citing a China's CDC data, it was such a beautiful decline from a peak. Exactly. So what I'm trying to point out is that the whole point of this combination of external propaganda and domestic information censorship is to secure the CCP governing position. They rule China. 
Why do they need to secure their position or Xi Jinping even? Because they have to face the music that they、uh, they mishandled the crisis in the early stage. While until now,、uh, Li Keqiang, the premier,、uh, premier, still emphasize in a very different tone from Xi Jinping that the reporting of the coronavirus cases should not be、uh, fabricated, should not be delayed. And、uh, this is particularly a sign that points fingers towards、uh, Xi Jinping, the chairman's mishandling, and also a very a serious question of his capability to govern this country. So the grand external propaganda that the CCP initiated、uh, since mid March has been put forward Chinese foreign policy officials. To point a finger, to blame, to name and shame the American soldiers for、uh, spreading coronavirus to mainland China, while at the same time, unlike in the past, when the disinformation campaign tried to keep a distance from official propaganda, this time they work in sync. I mean, some of the facts are that there was a Chinese diplomatic official on Twitter speculating that maybe the coronavirus showed up in Wuhan because the American military was there. That theory、uh, has been debunked. There is no basis for it. We still don't actually know where this virus has come from. But again, wet market, exotic wildlife.、Um, And we have the SARS experience from the early 2000s, where it was bats. So, again, I think、um, a government or a global stakeholder, we all need to stick to the facts, right? I have no problem with、uh, tracing back to the source, but that's not an issue that we can answer at this moment. But what is obvious, problematic, is how China. Manage this crisis and how the implication that China's mismanagement has caused worldwide. There was a think tank out of the UK, I think Henry Jackson Society. They recently also put out a report on legal liabilities that China could fall under if countries or governments really wanted to sue them about the problematic behavior. I mean, the deaths are there for everyone to count. Doctor Zhang, tell our listeners about this term: coordinated, inauthentic behavior. What is that for the layman who don't look at cybersecurity or disinformation? Well, it means that when you receive message from either Line or WhatsApp. There's some news, probably very likely inauthentic fake news, but at the same time you may receive another similar message from your Facebook or your email. That's、um, the coordination going on. Yeah, but they may come from networked、uh, sources. But you know, in、uh, cyberspace, attribution is always pain in the neck. But the symptom or the、uh, outcome is obvious. When we say this is an inference campaign, what matters is that. People receiving the message got influenced, but if you talk in sync with Chinese government officials, that won't work. So why bother when you try so hard to make this effort? 
And that's why we focus on that they try to influence their own domestic audience to secure their own position domestically. So I think we have this phrase in Mandarin, you export something to bring it back in. So what you're saying is these foreign influence operations of the CCP may actually be directed at their own domestic audience behind the Great Firewall in China. Exactly. So far, their most critical are Liang Hui. The two sessions of so their uh, annual parliamentary meeting. Yes, uh, has not been held yet. Yeah, it was supposed to be happening in every March, early That's March. Right. But because of the influence of the pandemic, China has no better choice but to postpone it. And um, some rumors say that uh, it could be happening in mid-May or late May. And what we already know is their Renda. Uh, um, the annual parliamentary meeting. No, their People's Assembly is now convening a meeting to discuss about the agenda. So maybe we will see the official uh, release from CCP government very soon. What's the significance of this? Um, it will decide when the two sessions will be happening, the date and the agenda. I'm sorry, so what? Um, that means uh, Xi Jinping tried to um, to prove that uh, he is uh, still in power ah. in very uh, strong control of the government and the country. Part of uh, this um, not being sincere or saying or claiming something, but the facts on the ground don't actually match – um, another one of the pieces in the special edition talks about the PLA. I mean, this is the world's largest army, People's Liberation Army. It is one of our colleagues, Dr. Oh Shifu. And he writes that just looking at the changes in the training schedules, in the recruitment drive schedules, and also in how the PLA responded to the coronavirus in Wuhan, all shows that the PLA has not been able to offer as much support as perhaps it should, and also that it's probably got a lot of folks, soldiers, infected and under quarantine, even though we don't know anything about it because it's a state secret. How does anyone trying to make policy on the future world order or against influence campaigns how do they weigh these things then? You have facts, you have speculation. Well, usually we make our policy suggestion on an evidence basis evaluation. So, for example, if we want to point out that they are not consistent in what they are claiming, then we match their acts, see if they match their words. For example, for their Belt and Road Initiative, they try to say, well, there's no string attached. It's unlike IMF or World Bank foreign aid program. We will build up the infrastructure for you guys, for the partners. But actually, there's string attached. If they cannot pay the debt, it's not charity. China is not charity donor. It's very transactional. Uh, uh, so the uh, uh, so-called debt trap is now prevalent. And recently... Tanzania president has Tanzania in Africa? Yes, uh, has called for a backout from China's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, that is a sign that we would think that China has not backed down yet from the negotiating posture. 
in which African countries may ask for or demand for debt forgiveness or debt relief under the coronavirus influence. And speaking of strings attached, because we are sitting in Taiwan, one string that is attached to this uh, financial assistance, loans, help, is that you must recognize one China and Taiwan is not a country under that policy. Let's take a break now. We've been talking to Dr. Li Zhechen of the Division of National Security and Decision Making and Dr. Zhen Yisuo of the Division of Cyber Warfare and Information Security, both with the Institute for National Defense and Security Research. When we come back, let's talk about militaries and COVID-19. Hi. If you've enjoyed the Taiwan Take, you can give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts. This helps other listeners find the show. If you have a news tip, tweet at us at Ghost Island Me. For dollar tips, we take monthly donations through Patreon. Find us on Patreon.com/Taiwan. The world's largest army, the PLA. I want to ask uh, you doctors about this. Now, in our uh, special piece in this edition, one of the authors, Doctor O. Talks about training schedules being moved. I mean, you don't suspend a key training program for Chinese nuclear submarines. You don't suspend major drills at your largest training base in Inner Mongolia, Zhuzhihe, unless COVID nineteen has hit your armed forces. Right? Yes, correct. We have internal discussion on、um, Dr. O's piece when he say that the POI only devote partially. To the management of、uh, COVID nineteen situation, we ask him what is the real reason why POA can only provide partial or limited support. Now, when we talk about the partial limited support in his piece, he says how、uh, medical personnel from the PLA they made up less than ten percent of all medical personnel in Hubei. In the March time period, he also talked about how the PLA was actually kind of slow in mobilizing to get into Wuhan. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, that's what we are questioning. That how come the PLA was slow in joining this combat with very low percentage of medical personnel? He said that、uh, even though we don't have convincing figures of、uh, how many. Military or sailors in PLA are in fact infected by the disease. We are quite sure that because of the influence of the disease, what PLA can provide was so low, so slow, and so limited. It was interesting because another one of our pieces by Doctor Shu, he actually tries to talk about what the Pentagon has done, and that is. So huge, but he goes into humongous detail. And my takeaway from it was that if the most advanced armed forces in the world, the U.S., you know, is having so much problems and such a tough time combating and countering this deadly virus, then the lack of detail on infection cases coming out from other militaries, like in China or in Russia. It doesn't mean that they're faring any better, right?、Uh, I think that points in the right direction. That no armies 
militaries in the, around the world are ready, are prepared for this coronavirus. This is the first time that for students of IR theories to international relations, international relations theory to really face the element of uncertainty and how to deal with that. I want to go back a little bit to uh, how limited the PLA has been involved in countering this coronavirus. I think they have poorly limited resources. For one reason, probably they have to protect themselves. But for another reason is that they have only limited capacity. Uh, what I have seen uh, so far is that, uh, like in Taiwan or in Japan, the bio and the chemical divisions have been devoted to this uh, disease control and uh, other uh, support. But uh, we haven't seen any of uh, PLA's bio and chemical units uh, either Wuhan or elsewhere. What does that mean? It means they're not advanced enough in this area yet. One direction for us to speculate here is that uh, after the structural reform of their military uh, years before, the bio and the chemical divisions has been shrinked a lot. So this time they'd prefer uh, using Uh, civilian sectors to deal with the hygiene issue. But uh, this is rare when they try to promote the image of PLA in this uh, coronavirus. But when you look around, elsewhere, the militaries, the bio and the chemical division has been in there. But the uh, counterpart is not in for that. This is interesting because, uh, and I want to ask uh, you doctors about the change in warfighting concepts. Dr. Lee, you talked about it earlier when we first started the episode. But two of our other research pieces, we look at the Bundeswehr. This is the German defense ministry. Then we also uh, have a review of the Japan self-defense force. So in our special edition, we're looking at Japan, we're looking at Germany. Now my takeaway from reading the research, the Bundeswehr is doing exactly what the PLA hasn't. It was a microbiological think tank that first confirmed the first case in Germany. It was connected to the Bundeswehr, this think tank. Our researcher mapped it all out and one of the German Navy ships now is outfitted to be able to test for COVID-19 on the ship being out at sea. So it's building up its capacity, its military capacity, but in a different way because of this situation. Japan, on the other hand, again, uh, I think it's Dr. Yang who was writing about it. She reviews how the JSDF, Japan Self-Defense Force, right? They are also stepping in to work on the medical aspect of this crisis. I thought it was very surprising. It was new for me. But again, so war fighting concepts and these changes, what does it mean? I think just like Dr. Zeng has already pointed out, no any military in the world are immune to this disease. But the problem is that uh, how Do we see different military in the world coupled with this uh, situation? That is the reason why we have so many articles, case study basis, trying to show the readers how the different military have done so far. And uh, when when I talk about the warfighting concept, 
I'm trying to deliver a very, very raw concept that even though we don't know whether this is a biological warfare or not, we don't have evidence, but we may have already seen what could be deployed and development, I mean, by a biological warfare. And that could become a very interesting and significant way of asymmetric warfare, like what we have seen from the case of a September 11 event. Because after that, state and non-state actors in the world, especially those uh, terrorist organizations, they found out that this could be a very useful tool. And this also have a very strong impact on the U.S. uh, decision-making of warfighting concept. That is the reason why we see the war U.S. launched in Afghanistan and Iraq. And after this pandemic, I think a lot of countries will think that maybe under certain circumstances, we have capability and we, we can control the element or conditions which will allow us to launch this kind of warfare. For example, a long time ago, when we see the Spanish conquer, they went to Latin America because they were immune from some, some virus or some genes so that they were able to conquer the Aztec and to defeat Aztec the empire. Because the natives, yeah. they did not have immunity for these yes. real-world diseases. Yes, uh, they were not the even opened why. up yet. Right? Yeah, or under some circumstances. For example, when you were able to to hold your enemy within a certain region, maybe you can launch that kind of attack. So I think that could have a very long-lasting influence uh, upon the future warfighting concept. I do have to emphasize, um, this has been a really great chat and conversation with both of you. I mean, Dr. Lee, I know you participate in a lot of track two, uh, maybe even track 1.5 dialogue on behalf of the Institute. And I remember, Dr. Zhang, you're impressive because when I first met you, you said that you commuted daily from Xinzhu, which is 90 minutes from Taipei. And you said you did this because the Institute is the only think tank here in Taiwan that has a division just devoted to cyber security policy research. Gentlemen, it's been fantastic picking your brain today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a Ghost Island Media production based in Taipei, Taiwan. This episode was produced and edited by me, Emily Waiwu. Our researcher is Sam Robbins, brand designed by Thomas Lee. Catch you next time. Bye.